From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, we'll speak with Professor Bill Leonard, church historian at Wake Forest University School of Divinity, about dissent and San Francisco 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick. And after that, Dee McDougal, executive from Square One Bank, joins us to discuss Black Wall Street in Durham, North Carolina, its history, and the efforts that young African-American entrepreneurs are making to reclaim that legacy. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome. I'm Byron Williams. For several news cycles, the chattering class was consumed with San Francisco 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick's decision not to stand during the national anthem. Predictably, the debate centered on the emotionally charged linear axis of whether Kaepernick was right or wrong, patriotic versus unpatriotic. But our guests, Bill Leonard, see Kaepernick's actions as being more complex. Leonard is the James and Marilyn Dunn Professor of Baptist Studies and Professor of Church History at Wake Forest University School of Divinity. Bill Leonard, welcome to The Public Morality. Thanks. Glad to be here, Byron. Let's begin. So much has been made uh, of late um, about San Francisco 49ers quarterback, uh, backup quarterback, I might add, um, Colin Kaepernick's decision not to stand for the national anthem. Why do you believe this story has dominated several news cycles? Well, I think primarily because, uh, well, one, because it's an election year and everything is sensitive. Uh, Everything becomes an issue in the public square. And and so people are, I, I'm not even sure sensitized, but at least uh, uh, fretting over every kind of issue that that looks like a public issue and a controversial issue. So I think that's one thing. I think the other is we uh, we may pay more attention to uh, to the sports. Uh, responses uh, than we do to other things. And so it's such a public event, such a public moment. Um, So I think that's another thing. And then uh, I also think that that, uh, national symbols become moments when we, when, when these rituals uh, captivate people and they uh, get very concerned that, that somehow we have uh, uh, acted, uh, heretically, actually, because it becomes part of the national civil religion, uh, saying the pledge or uh, standing for the national anthem. And so that that has a kind of religio-cultural controversy to it as well. Well, I mean, that's sort of an ironic twist if you think about it, because you you called it our civic religion, and yet um, this is— you can make, make you make an argument for all the sports, but but football in particular is probably the most violent uh, of all the sports that we have. It, why do why do you why is it? I mean, do you have any speculation as as to why it's so important that we stand for a national anthem? I'm not saying it's either good or bad, but why is it so important in sporting events? Do you think? I think I think we have very few collective symbols in the culture. Because, and, and I don't think that's a, a negative thing. I think that's a sign of pluralism. Uh, 
in that uh, individual individual communities, individual uh, subgroups have these um, the, the, their own symbols. But uh, national anthem at sporting events remains one of those symbols of uh, for sort of civic duty and common. Uh, uh, civic religion experience, and that, so I think that's what focuses on it, and and uh, it goes back so far. Uh, I, I was I was thinking with all this uh, about Muhammad Ali's recent memorial service, and uh, the kind of uh, uh, outpouring of both gratitude and sympathy and uh, uh, public response about the contribution that Muhammad Ali had made across the years in this country. But I lived in Louisville for 16 years, and I know that um, uh, there was a time when Muhammad Ali was vilified in a similar manner uh, because of his response to uh, war and to public Christianity and his own conversion to Islam. Uh, and and then uh, th- there's, a whole, there's a whole legacy of... Uh, utilizing sporting events and public moments to uh, focus dissent. And so this is one of a long line of of those kinds of activities. And the interesting thing to me, Byron, is um, that now uh, history moves along and we honor some of those dissenters, like Muhammad Ali. But when it it comes up again in the contemporary moment, uh, we start attacking. So... Why, may I ask you as a church historian, did this issue uh, inspire you to write an editorial? What what, what was underneath it for you? Well, uh, I I am uh, a historian of, uh, particularly uh, focused on American religion, and I'm also uh, an ordained Baptist minister, and I've been very influenced by the 17th century Baptists and their dissent against... um, elements that, that, even much more than in our own culture, were a, a union of the civil and the religious, and their sense that uh, dissent is, is uh, not simply a duty, it, it's, it's a probability uh, for a certain kind of religious experience because uh, culture and church and state are uh, knowingly or unknowingly, always going to try to dictate certain kinds of religious or symbolic behavior, and and the Baptists reacted against that as early as 1609, and and they were some of the first people in English to talk about dissent in the context of coerced faith, uh, coerced public symbols, and so. That legacy has influenced me a lot, and I think about dissent because I teach, I have a chair in Baptist studies uh, at Wake Forest University. And so I I, I sort of live in that world, and it seemed to me a moment uh, to to place these, these issues in contemporary sporting events in the larger context of dissent from the colonial period to the present, and, and whether that dissent was with religious liberty for people like Jonathan Edwards or for civil rights like uh, uh, persons like uh, Fannie Lou Hamer uh, or or like these uh, various sports figures who are now uh, dissenting in, in a particular response uh, to public symbols. 
Well, in fact, you, you, you wrote recently in the Winston-Salem Journal, quote, descent flows like stormy winds across the American landscape from Roger Williams, Baptist, uh, 17th uh, century founding Providence Plantation as a shelter from personal distress of conscience. Yeah. Is you see Kaepernick in that tradition? Uh, yes. And, and one of my favorite lines in Roger Williams, and there are a lot of great lines in Roger Williams who uh, really, uh, in, in a way that very few people in, the, in 17th century New England did, had a vision of pluralism uh, and, and the sense that God alone is judge of conscience. And so neither the state nor an official church can judge the conscience of the, tr- the, of, of, uh, the true believer, the heretic, or the atheist. Uh, and, and in doing that opens a door to what we now call religious pluralism. But my favorite phrase in Williams is his own phrase when he looked back years later and said he invented Providence, Rhode Island, and with it the Rhode Island colony as a shelter for persons distressed of conscience. And I find that to be a wonderful line relative to dissent and its role in the American experience. And, and um, in that, you mentioned um, heretic. And I, I, I could imagine some of our listeners might take umbrage with your last remarks, suggesting that Kaepernick's actions um, are, are, are in that tradition of dissent. And I can, see, I can see some of them saying he's an unappreciative, high-paid, spoiled athlete who's thumbing his nose at America. How, how would you respond to a charge like that? Well, uh, one, one may... It may speak like that, except uh, again, he I, I, from from reading him, I think he feels as if he has a role uh, to play in this culture that the culture has given him in terms of where he is and what his public uh, role would be. And it is well paid, and it is all that. But it cost him something to do that. He took a chance that they might kick him out. And and so we all find we all find ways to think about our consciences where we are, and uh, I think that's what he has done uh, to make a point about concerns relative to law enforcement uh, and uh, race uh, and justice. And uh, you don't have to agree with him to understand, perhaps, that he's exercising. Uh, a grand role of dissent that has been at the heart of um, American life since the beginning of the republic. And, and again, my point as a historian, uh, and, and we talk about Ms. Hamer, uh, um, in her day, she is terribly vilified by her culture, including being imprisoned and beaten uh, in Mississippi jails. Now... She's one of a whole sort of pantheon of heroes who turned out to be right. Well, let, let's, let's, let's stay with that for a moment. I was going to ask you this later, and since you, you've raised it twice now, I think we should segue to it now. Um, and, and, and you can make the connection as well to, to the present day, but who, but who was Fannie Lou Hamer? Uh, she is a Mississippi African-American woman uh, who— uh, and I, I think Methodist, correct me if I'm wrong, I think she was Methodist. And, uh, but, but she is a church woman, 
and uh, takes it upon herself within the larger context of the civil rights movement in the 1960s in Mississippi, the seedbed of, of civil rights and violence against that movement. And I talk about her from uh, uh, this wonderful book, God's Long Summer, uh, in which uh, time and time again, she challenges uh, the uh, absence of voting rights for African Americans and puts herself on the front lines uh, in the effort to register persons to vote in Mississippi, even when the rules... Uh, such as uh, having the, these 25 questions that you required to answer, including uh, obscure questions about the Mississippi state constitution. So everyone flunked. That, 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 that took them. the test, right? Yes, it <laughs> took the test. Um, she continues to challenge that. And, and uh, Goslong Summer traces those experiences uh, in Mississippi with her in 62, 63, 64. And, and when she's, uh, in, in one particular case, she goes to register to vote, and uh, the whole group fails the test. And, and the way in which her faith, uh, the, the bus they were on coming back uh, gets pulled over, and uh, the driver gets arrested for driving a bus that looked too much like a school bus. So that's just like a made-up charge. And, and the rest of the bus is scared they're going to get arrested or they can't get home. And uh, the uh, writer of God's Long Summer tells about uh, all of a sudden she's in the back of the bus humming and then singing, uh, have a little talk with Jesus, tell him all about our troubles. And that link between dissent and faith, which is, I think, going back to Roger Williams and John Clark and the Quakers uh, in colonial America, uh, a, a, an important link between uh, this is this is not simply a, an act of justice; it's an act of faith. Um, has there ever been a time in American history when dissent was initially seen uh, as the ally of the status quo? That's a great. That's a great question, and um, I think in some some segments that is that is um, uh, I, I'm I'm going to take a chance, and you you push back on this if you if you think I'm being a, a bit too glib about it. I think the abolitionist movement uh, in the North uh, before and during the Civil War uh, rewrote the status quo. Uh, in a way that it had not been rewritten before, to say that uh, we 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 can't claim to be Americans um, and and continue in chattel slavery, and so th there was a sense I think uh, in in a surprisingly rapid period of time when even though not all Northerners agreed with the abolitionists, when the abolitionists really rewrote. Uh, the status quo in, in, for certain mm -hmm. pieces of northern culture, and and then, um, and I'm, I'm about going to tease and say, uh, I also I, I love your question. I'm going to have to think about it a bit, but I don't I don't think so. Uh, other than that that uh, that illustration I made, I think that dissent always challenges challenges the status quo. Uh, dramatically. 
then, but then, t- and also, I, I think, with, with that said, I think um, time and time again, regardless, we, we tend to look at these moments as different. As you're, I'm going back to what you said earlier, yeah. that yeah. you have this uproar about Mr. Kaepernick. Um, and we both remember a time when Muhammad Ali slash Cassius Clay was vilified for doing similar, and yet the response is always the same. Even though history can be cyclical in a macro context, we look at these scenarios, especially we have the privilege of being the status quo, of looking at it as this isolated moment. Yes, that's right. That's right. and and without and that what you were asking about why I wrote that article. Part of the reason I, I wrote that article was to say this is not new and this belongs to a particular tradition. Uh, and not everybody. Uh, I, I don't know much about his faith uh, from a faith perspective, but not everybody who dissents has to necessarily have a particular uh, faith perspective either. Mm-hmm. So, um, but but. The other thing that amazes me, and this is true of Roger Williams, it's true of uh, Mrs. Hamer and others, of course, is um, uh, how did they see in their culture what the majority did not see? Uh, I find that particularly the case with Williams, who who looks way beyond his his context to a vision of uh, America that that was just not. On very many people's. I mean, this is pre-revolutionary war. Mm-hmm. Um, and and how did people like uh, Frederick Douglass and Sojourner Truth, uh, people who came out of slavery, see that there could be that that there could be a way? And and it brings us up to Martin Luther King, who's all, who fascinates in the sense uh, in many senses, but in particularly he sa- he says America has this legacy, it just hasn't lived up to the dream. And, and the, the, the promises that were made have to be extended to everyone. And that's really what, what uh, Roger Williams is saying so very early on, even before some of the promises are made. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with uh, Professor Bill Leonard from Wake Forest University School of Divinity. Uh, do you think uh, we... As a, as a society, I'm just uh, planning broad strokes here. Are we guilty sometimes of truncating what it means to be American with our particular understanding? Yes, absolutely. Uh, and we see that in, in other eras. Uh, we, we can just expand that, that whole dissent. That is, uh, we, we, we're now in this controversy over whether uh, uh, Latino, Latina uh, individuals can be good Americans, and, and uh, where, where the danger of the immigrant. But we could go back and say uh, one of the most uh, terrible periods in American life when, when everybody was afraid of Roman Catholics and where the Catholic immigrant, uh, you know that old line in, uh, in the stores in Boston, no Irish need apply. Uh, so part of what I have said is where religious liberty is concerned, and this is, this is true with, with American uh, democracy as well, uh, Americans grant religious liberty, but we often do it grudgingly. Uh, it takes a while for new religious groups, new ethnic groups, new racial groups uh, to benefit from the claims we make because uh, we often give that, that liberty grudgingly and suspiciously on, when, when, when these groups uh, appear. 
Well, I guess in the immediate context, based on what you just said, uh, that doesn't leave much room for the contrarian opinion. And and how critical, in your view, is the contrarian opinion or or dissent been to the formation, the continuation of the American experiment? It formed us. It formed us and and shapes us every time because often uh, we we don't envision where this democracy should take us on the basis of the claims we've made. And it requires the dissenter to highlight that even when the dissenters are dealt with violently. Uh, they, they lay down uh, often their lives uh, for this legacy, and they carry us uh, farther than we, than we wanted to go but, but need to go to fulfill these promises we've made. So they're the ones who, who uh, carry us into places that often the majority doesn't want to go because um, we don't see that larger vision. We get tribal, we get uh, uh, our own definitions of Americanism, and they carry us beyond that. And it's hard. It, it's, it's terrible at the moment. Um, but but it, that is, even though that's difficult, it is one of the great things about uh, this country, I think. You know, I, as, you were, as you were talking, um, forgive me, but I was thinking in terms of Hegel, and that we might be the anti-Hegels in that um, the truth, facts alone don't give us truth. I mean, I mean Hegel would say that it's this interrelatedness of facts where we get truth, but, but at the same time, it's, like, it's almost, I hear you saying that we're almost embracing a fact, our fact, and making that the truth. Yep, that's right. That's right. Uh, and... and Political orthodoxy, that's the thin line between uh, uh, religious or political orthodoxy and uh, uh, control, social control. Uh, There are boundaries, uh, but uh, knowing when the boundaries should hold and when we need to loosen them is, is part of what dissenters remind us. We've come. We've obviously, as you wrote in it, your wonderful piece, uh, that's been a long-held uh, tradition, whether we tend to acknowledge it or not, or whether they've been, as is oftentimes, some of our best dissenters have been dealt with harshly. But Professor Bill Leonard of Wake Forest University School of Divinity, I want to thank you today, sir, for being on The Public Morality. Wonderful. Wonderful to talk to you, and thank you for doing this. My pleasure. That was Bill Leonard. Coming up, Dee McDougall joins us to talk about Black Wall Street. In contemporary speak, Durham, North Carolina, is synonymous with Duke University, and perhaps more specifically, Duke basketball. But from the end of the Civil War into the early 1900s, Durham was one of several cities in the United States that touted a black community known as Black Wall Street. 
Black Wall Street was a hub of economic activity led by black entrepreneurs who sought to meet the needs of a community who were systematically disenfranchised by Jim Crow segregation. Today, a group of young African-American entrepreneurs inspired by the legacy of yesteryear are seeking to create a different Black Wall Street, one that is undergirded by technology. Joining us to discuss not only the history of Black Wall Street, but also its 21st century version is Dee McDougall. In addition to being a founding member of Black Wall Street, McDougall is vice president of Square One Bank's marketing and communications strategy. Square One Bank provides commercial banking and financial services to entrepreneurs and venture capitalists nationwide. Dee McDougall, welcome to The Public Morality. Well, thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. Let's begin with you providing a brief history of Black Wall Street as it relates to Durham. Okay, uh, sure thing. So Black Wall Street, um, back in the late 1890s to the 1960s, was a uh, four-block district in downtown Durham on Paris Street. Uh, The area was a hub of African-American business activity, a concentration of black executives and professionals, um, and it was home to, like, a couple of really large um, companies, including North Carolina Mutual Life Insurance, Mechanics, and Farmers Bank. Um, there were a host of other prominent businesses right in the center of the sort of white business district as well um, there in downtown Durham. And at that time, during its heyday, Blacks in Durham had the highest per capita income and highest rate of home ownership in the country. So um, it was, while there were other Black Wall Streets across the country, Durham definitely stood out as a place um, for the Black middle class. And, and while we're on that, why, why don't you also provide um, a, a little background on why Black Wall Street, Durham, Tulsa, and other places, why was it necessary to, to, to create uh, such a community? Well, um, it was out of necessity. So uh, the Black Wall Street areas across the country, um, there were needs that um, weren't being met. Uh, so there was a lot of uh, genius within the Black community to be able to create businesses that served, you know, our own community. And that's what helped to um, make Black Wall Street communities across the country thrive. Now, your organization has adopted that legacy and and seeks to place it in the uh, confines of the 21st century. So what does that look like? So for us, we're really honored and excited to build on sort of the history that is Black Wall Street, specifically in Durham. You know, this was created over 100 years ago, but the characteristics, the principles that made Black Wall Street so important and successful back then are really important now. So things like entrepreneurship, innovation, hustle and grit, those are all things that, um, you know, made that area successful then and can still be applied today to how companies are built. It's our goal to take those key characteristics and apply them today to the conversation around diversity within the technology space and help our community thrive in the same way. Now, since you mentioned technology, um, it's often viewed as the ultimate uh, meritocracy, probably uh, technology and sports are just viewed in that context. Is that really an accurate assessment as it relates to people of color? Um, I think technology at its core, sure. Um, maybe the generation of the ideas or, you know, getting to a certain point with building out the technology, but actually getting a product to market or, you know, getting the money that you, you need or resources that you need to take that technology further. I think that absolutely has everything to do with who you know and being part of the right conversations and, and things of that nature. So merit will only get you so far. And that's what we're seeing today. You know, you see a lot of people that have the same ideas, but certain people get further along in the process than others. And so it can't be merit that's taking them, you know, all the way. Now, I recently read uh, a Pew Research study. that said the median uh, 
wealth of white households is some 20 times greater than black households and 18 times greater than uh, Hispanic households. How does that connection uh, between closing that entrepreneur gap that, that, that I think you, you, you seek to do, how is that intertwined with that overall wealth disparity gap? So I think, first off, accumulating more wealth makes you more comfortable with taking risks. So if you have money in the bank or you come from a family that has you know, additional resources, then you may be more likely to take a risk than taking what could be considered as a sure bet. And then also um, having access to that capital will help you fund your venture in its earliest stages. Um, so, you know, you hear a lot of startups, uh, you know, starting a company is a hard thing. And so you hear a lot of stories from startups that, you know, to fund their earliest um, days, they um, had access to personal credit. They had access to friends and family who could, you know, gift them $10,000 or give them $20,000. And just within our community, for the most part, access to that capital doesn't exist. So closing the entrepreneur gap and hopefully helping um, entrepreneurs to be able to, you know, grow scalable businesses that give them great returns, that will sort of re-energize um, the, um, the, the access to capital that these entrepreneurs need to put back into their communities and help others um, along the way. And another point is, um, you know, further down the line for these companies that want to grow and scale, if they are going to be seeking investments from outside sources, uh, those investors often want to see that they've been able to raise some money. So it's sort of, you know, you've got skin in the game through your own um, resources, and then you might have raised money from friends and family, and then the investors are then going to come in and say, hey, I, I want to invest too. But very rarely are they going to give money if you haven't raised any capital. So hopefully closing the gap will um, help solve a part of this problem. And, and I think you – would you also uh, include in that um, – the the legacy piece, that, that, that it makes a difference to say working, no disparity on those who work for IBM, but working for IBM, um, you know, as opposed to creating a business where that legacy piece is passed on to future generations that, that makes, uh, uh, gives their lives a, a startup as well. Would that, be, would that be correct? Yeah. So I think there is, um, you know, sort of a legacy piece, um, you know, to it for certain businesses, but then there also is the opportunity to you know, have a successful exit from a company and then use that cash or redeploy that cash to do something different. So it's just having access to, you know, capital and resources to be able to make those decisions that, um, you know, some of our peers have already have access to and then we don't, so we don't get to make those choices. Say a little bit more, if you will, about, about the exit strategy. G give me something specific, what, what, what you may be referring there. So, you know, whether you are, um, you know, growing a company to sell it in a couple of years and hopefully, you know, have some return, whether you're growing a company to be able to, um, you know, to sell it or to be acquired or, you know, the long shot is for it to, you know, grow to a point where um, you would have a, a successful public offering. But those are exit strategies. Um, and those are the types of returns that investors are, are going to want. Institutional investors are going to want to put their money where they're going to realize some really big, um, really big returns. So um, it all it all depends on what excuse me, what your business is doing and the clients and the market size that you have. And so th that's what kind of determines what your exit strategy would be for, for the company. Mm -hmm. Now, let's talk specifically about um, uh, the difficulty that people of color are having securing the proper funding for their startups. Oh, sure. Um, I think it all begins with the fact that people tend to do business with, invest in, and recruit within their, their own respective networks. So um, what, what ends up happening, and we know this kind of, you know, you see it every day that when your network is homogenous, the output of your work will likely reflect your network. So if, if you're doing business with 
and at the same table with people who look just like you and have the same opinions as you, then you're really going to look to those same people for um, guidance and referrals into your network. So even though inviting others in is an active process, it's really necessary to ensure sort of a diverse ecosystem. And so when it comes to raising uh, venture capital dollars, people of color are really at a disadvantage because just 2% of venture capital investors are black and 1% are Hispanic. So, I mean, when you look at it, if, if people are doing business with the network and it, typically networks are mostly homogenous, then, you know, 97% of the time we're not part of the conversation. And those numbers, on the numbers, those numbers you just provided, the 2% for African-American startups, uh, 1% for Hispanic startups. I would imagine those numbers are even worse um, when it con- if you break that out in terms of gender, are they not? Yes, and so just to clarify, that 2% and 1%, that's the percentage of venture capital investors, not not startups. So of all the people who are able to sort of cut the checks to invest in startups, then that number is 2%, 1%, African-American and Hispanic, respectively. But yeah, when you talk about the number of, or the percentage of, of the percentage of businesses of color that are able to raise funding, it's even lower. So just 1% of venture capital invested has gone to black founders. And for black, excuse me, for black women, that percentage is really, really low, like almost zero at 0.002%. And just to give you some context, um, for early stage investments, so seed round and early stage investments in the second quarter of 2016, that number was $4.5 billion. So, you know, there's a lot of money that's moving around and we are just seeing a really small percentage, almost, you know, nil when it comes to dollars that are invested in um African-American founded companies. Uh, you sort of touched on this earlier, but I, I want to come back to it because I think, I think it's important. Uh, talk, talk to us about uh, how most startups secure funding and why this process in general is just so detrimental to many businesses of color. Oh, oh goodness. Okay, so um, <laughs> <laughs> bootstrap. Okay, so uh, startups fund their businesses or people who are, you know, startup starting companies fund their businesses in a number of ways number of ways. That could be bootstrapping, friends and family, um, angel investors, crowdfunding, or VCs. And angel investors um, so are? Angel investors are individuals who um, who uh, invest, you know, hundreds of thousands to maybe um, a million dollars in particular um, companies. And then VCs or venture capital investors get involved in larger rounds. Although now there are some venture capital firms that are investing at um, sort of the, the earlier stage, so investing hundreds of thousands of dollars to, you know, a million dollars in these companies. Um, But on the institutional side, like the fundraising process for startups is a long, hard, and uh, sometimes dead-end road for many. And so over the past few years, uh, things have gotten a lot tighter, and that's just for everybody, not even breaking it down by uh, race or gender. And it just shows that while deals are still getting done, investors, institutional investors or VCs are really becoming more selective in where they put their money. So they want to see revenue, they want to see traction, they want to see other um, see startups meet these milestones. And so companies that are able to raise a seed round, which could be from a few hundred thousand dollars to a couple of million dollars, they find it hard to get to a series A, which is a, excuse me, a few million dollars to $15 million. And so even if we're talking about the global universe of those who are you know, starting companies, that could be 60, excuse me, close to 60% of that group can't raise a follow-on round of funding. And so that's for everybody who has the right connections and is growing a, a company that people would be attracted to. Um, and so if 60% of everyone can't make it, just imagine how hard it is if you're an outsider in the space and you don't have a friends and family network that could fund your earliest stages. So it's just really hard because 
you know, within the communities or people of color, they don't have access or we don't have access to a lot of those same resources in the beginning. And that's what allows you to be able to get further. And then the funnel just gets a lot smaller the further you get down the line as you develop your company. So that, that's what makes it really difficult. Yeah. And that really goes back to your n- earlier point about the um, homogenization. It makes that mm-hmm. even more pernicious on, on, on people of color, I would imagine. Absolutely. Now, tell, tell us specifically about um, your efforts, Black Wall Street, and, um, and beginning with the, this is your second year, so beginning with the genesis of it and, and, and where you are for your upcoming uh, three-day event. Okay, sure. Um, so what started as a back-of-the-napkin sketch between, um, you know, my three co-founders it has grown really into a movement over the past year. The initial idea was to create a more diverse startup ecosystem in Durham and invite VCs from around the company, excuse me, around the country to see what was happening here in Durham. So, you know, that was the business side. It's like to get people here to see the activity, the startup activity, and maybe get some deals done. And then that meshed with the culture side because Durham is such a unique place. And one of our co-founders, Tobias Rose, he has an office on Paris Street. And so between those conversations, um, you know, Black Wall Street Homecoming was born. It, it's homecoming because it's bringing people back to an area. Um, it, the timing coincided with one of um, our local university's um, homecoming events. So the whole idea was born. And it's really um, interesting and, and great to see how people have, you know, received the um, event over the past year. It, we would name it a success for last year. But really over the past 12 months, we've been to other markets and people are really excited about what we're offering, which is, you know, co- quality content and conversations that are led by mostly black founders and investors, and then opportunities for people to get together, you know, exchange ideas in places that they feel welcome. So that's what we're all about, you know, a sense of belonging where you can get deals done. And so, you know, I think people take for granted a lot of times how important that is to, you know, feel like this is a place for you to do, you know, the things that you need to do in order to be able to grow your business or, you know, develop yourself professionally, all of those things. So that's what, um, that's how it started, and, that, and that's what we're looking forward to in a few weeks. So we'll talk specifically about this uh, upcoming three-day event. Okay, perfect. Um, yeah, the three-day event is October 12th through 14th in areas um, right around Pierre Street in downtown Durham, um, and it offers something for everyone. Uh, so if you are a budding entrepreneur who has an idea but you just don't know what next steps to take, this could be the place for you. Um, if you have a company and you're looking for co-founders or other members um, of your leadership team, like I said, you know, this is a place for like-minded individuals to come and, you know, just exchange ideas. So you might be able to meet someone here. Uh, we have a pitch competition. So companies who are looking to pitch are, um, you know, welcome to join us here. Those who are looking for funds or looking to raise funds can come. Uh, we'll have a healthy mix of um, venture capitalists and some angel investors who are here looking for deals. And then just anybody who's interested in creating a more inclusive and diverse tech ecosystem is also welcome and would find a place here just to be able to be around folks who are trying to do the same thing. Um, And then people of the community who have no idea what any of this is about are also welcome to just come and learn. And then, of course, like I mentioned before, we've got a healthy dose of the culture aspect of it. So, um, you know, just to come and experience Durham and, um, you know, see what we're all about. a couple things. One, you you mentioned um, pitch a pitch competition. How how important is that to the process? Talk about what that is and how important it is. Oh sure. So our pitch competition, um, you know, gives early early stage entrepreneurs the opportunity to come and pitch their business in front of 
uh, VCs, other founders of companies, and just industry supporters. And that really, um, the pitch process for an entrepreneur um, really makes you hone in on your, excuse me, on your value proposition so that you have, um, in our pitch competition, there are no visual aids, so it's just um, the entrepreneur, their story, and their value proposition. So you really need to be able to convey, um, you know, what it is that the problem that you're solving um, explain that and then also explain how you your company is um, solving that problem and what the differentiators are between you and the competitors in your market. Because those are things that any investor is going to want to know, like what's the market opportunity, how are you solving your problem, and then, um, you know, a little bit about your team. So that's important. And then we do have a cash prize for that. And our pitch competition, we're proud to say that it's being sponsored by Magic Johnson Enterprises. And a couple of people from his team in California will be joining us here in Durham in a few weeks for the event. So, so uh, for those listening, um, it would be similar to that um, to the show uh, Shark Tank, right? That as long as along those lines. Yes. So, yes, Shark Tank is uh, sort of the ultimate pitch competition. So, on Shark Tank, uh, you have. investors who are looking to um, maybe make an investment in the companies that are coming to pitch. So there is, um, you know, there's that opportunity there. Um, but also this is sort of less formal in the sense that our, um, our judges will also be providing feedback to these companies on how they could better refine their pitch or some things that they may um, want to think about, um, you know, just some, some learnings that they're able to pass on to the investors. So it isn't, um, they're not pitching for an investment, although there will be investors in the room, they are pitching to win a prize, um, but they'll also get the experience of pitching and um, sort of feedback on on their pitch. And earlier, I'm going to come back to something you said earlier, too. You, you, you talked about um, uh, Black Wall Street and Durham and, and, and that legacy, but you talked in the 21st century context, you spoke also about the uniqueness of Durham and why this fits so well in, in, in Durham overall. Tell us about some of that uniqueness in Durham in the 21st century, if you will. Oh, goodness. Sure. The, um, you know, Durham is a very special place. It's, you know, it's situated, you know, right next to Raleigh um, and not far from Charlotte, but definitely has a personality that, that is its own. And so the startup community here has made a commitment to making Durham, you know, like the most diverse tech hub in the country. And with that commitment comes, you know, resources and visibility that you just don't find in other places. And so there's something special that's happening here with sort of the community being behind helping um, entrepreneurs of color and women-led companies, uh, just giving them access to the resources that they need to help, in as much as we can, level the playing field so that they too can realize, um, you know, some of the success that our counterparts have um, in other markets. So that, that is what's unique about Durham. Um, it, it definitely has has sort of a startup feel and a different, um, more eclectic personality than other cities. Now, let's talk a little bit about about um, your core group. Uh, you don't have to. I, don't, I mean, specifically, who, I mean, you have to tell me. You have to give me names, but tell me a little bit about your core group. You have three other founders of Black Wall Street. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Um, yes. So one of our um, co-founders leads um, corporate and community partnerships for one of the local. Um, the tech hub um, here in Durham, and she, through her work, you know, really is, um, you know, really is focusing on trying to bring attention to what's happening in Durham and Raleigh. They have a campus in Raleigh um, with all of the startups that are here and just really bringing attention and focus to this area because a lot is happening here with, with our proximity to RPP. Our RPP? To, oh, excuse me, Research Triangle Park. Okay. Um, with a lot of, um, 
you know, large companies and in different industries. Also with um, our pool of talent at the university level with Duke and UNC and NC State and NCCU. Um, there's just a lot. There's just a lot of talent here. So her her focus there is to sort of uh, create that community and that sense of belonging for um, entrepreneurs of color and women to be able to grow their businesses here and to bring in community and corporate partners that support that mission. We also have um, another co-founder who owns a digital marketing agency um, that's located on Paris Street, and he uh, has been in that spot um, for quite some time and is really connected in the, um, you know, in the Durham community. And he brings a different flavor of um, design to traditional um, traditional. Uh, clients, I should say. He does a lot of work in higher ed and some work with government. And so he's able to, um, you know, infuse his style into what is traditional um, advertising and marketing. And then our, the other uh, co-founder, he is an entrepreneur and also was a member of uh, Google's Code 2040 um, initial cohort. And Code 2040 is a program that puts um, entrepreneurs of color in sort of residence in uh, different markets across the country and gives them resources through a one-year program that hopefully helps them to grow and scale their businesses. So he was the Durham entrepreneur in residence here at the American Underground for 2015 to 2016. And just a little about me, uh, uh, I lead marketing and communications for a bank that serves entrepreneurs and their investors. So I'm pretty well entrenched in um, in the startup world, and we, we see it every day. So that's kind of the mix of our our team of founders, and we're also very fortunate to have a team of supporters that also span the um, startup ecosystem. So there are a lot of people that help us um, get to where we are. All of you sound um, is though in your own right, you're very successful, and I, uh, I would also add very busy. <laughs> why? Why is this so important? Because you could you could not do this and still be very busy. So what? So why are you all so committed to carving out your time for this? Oh. Um, because we all see in our, in our daily work that there are entrepreneurs of color who are building great companies or trying to build great companies and have excellent ideas that really would work. And we want to do what we can to help those um, people meet the folks that they need in order to get access to the resources um, that will help their companies grow. And so that, to us, the biggest thing is really getting the right people um, in the room together to make those connections. Um, so that things can happen over time. We recognize that sort of the entrepreneur or VC courtship or investor courtship is something that takes time. But in order for it to start, you have to know people. So it's really getting people together um, and allowing them and us to open our Rolodexes and, you know, share information and, and share these resources and inviting folks in from our own networks that, you know, typically wouldn't be part of this conversation, you know, um, inviting investors in that typically wouldn't have access to these entrepreneurs. So for us, it's kind of our responsibility because of, you know, where we sit in our day job to, to try to, to make this kind of thing happen. Now, now too often, um, for myriad reasons, um, when an event begins with the word, in this case, black, there's an assumption that this is an exclusive event, but that isn't the case with Black Wall Street. Am I correct? Oh, absolutely correct. Um, you know, Black Wall Street, Homecoming and Black Wall Street, our organization, is very much an inclusive um, event and series of events that just happen to be hosted by a team of African-American co-founders. You know, it is important to us that we 
feature um, speakers and panelists that are also African-American within the tech VC space, because that doesn't happen um, often enough. But, you know, the content and the themes and the takeaways that these speakers are, that they're sharing, those aren't specific to Black founders. You know, like I said, it is intentional that we feature these spaces, but we are, our goal is to have speakers and panelists um, lead conversations that are um, where the audience is diverse. So no, it is not exclusive. It is very much an inclusive event, but we do feel um, that it's important for us to lead these conversations um, sometimes as opposed to being just always in the audience. And, and, and you, you, you mentioned the representatives from the Magic Johnson Foundation. Who are some of the uh, other people that will be attending this event? Oh, okay. So attending, um, we'll have, uh, we have a number of uh, founders and teams that are going to be attending the event. The event um, is layered on top of uh, Google for Entrepreneurs Black Founders Exchange Program. So this is the first ever um, exchange program where Google for Entrepreneurs is bringing in 12 companies. Um, into Durham for a week-long intensive um, immersion experience where they'll get training and mentorship and things of that nature. So we're, we're pleased to welcome them as part of our event. We also have a long list of speakers that range from, um, you know, folks who have successfully raised um, venture capital dollars to um, investors themselves. Marlon Nichols from Cross Culture Ventures will be here um, speaking, um, Rodney Williams, who was on the cover of Black Enterprise Magazine, who has a company called Listener, will be here. Deshaun Amira, um, he's also a founder. He founded a company called Maven, which uh, has completely disrupted the um, hair uh, industry uh, through technology. Uh, Christine White, who is a, a prominent speaker from Atlanta, who's done a lot in community building around entrepreneurship. Uh, she'll be here. She's also an attorney and angel investor. Um, we have just a host of other um, VCs that will be in, um, you know, in attendance. We have Arlen Hamilton who will be here. Her um, firm, I do believe, is called Backstage Capital. Um, I could go on and on, but on our website, there's a full list of our speakers and panelists. And uh, um, before before you get, uh, before I let you go, you you also mentioned earlier that um, you, you're. In addition to Durham, you, you've been in other cities. So where, where are some other places that, that, that you have sp- spread this Black Wall Street message? Sure. Um, we went to Austin, Texas earlier this year for um, South by Southwest, um, which is a huge tech conference um, there in Austin. And, you know, we were all there on um, for respective <laughs> responsibilities with our day gigs, but we also found time to connect with, um, you know, entrepreneurs of color, in that market and they had heard about what we were doing. And at that point, you know, in Austin, we met with people from across the country because South by Southwest brings people to Austin from all around the world, in fact. So we were in Austin. And then in July, we took our show on the road and did our um, true first out-of-market experience with our Black Wall Street DC event. And it was well-attended and well-received. And so we did a half day of programming there um, around topics of interest to early-stage entrepreneurs and, um, sort of wrap the day up with a, a happy hour event. Uh, before you go, give us give us the dates again of your upcoming event and um, and how um, someone could get additional information that may be interested in attending. Uh, the uh, dates of the event are October 12th through 14th. That's a Wednesday through Friday in Durham. And for more information, you can visit bwshomecoming.com. And that BWS stands for Black Wall Street. Dee McDougal of Black Wall Street, I want to thank you for being on the public morality today. 
Thank you so much for having me. That was Dee McDougal. Coming up, my closing remarks. And now for my closing remarks. During this election cycle, it is not uncommon to hear charges levied against the Democratic Party for taking black voters and their issues for granted. We recently witnessed as Republican presidential nominee Donald Trump, before a largely white audience, offer a description of black communities as a bastion of failing schools, high unemployment, abject poverty, who dwell in war zones. In summation, he appealed for their votes by asking, what do you have to lose? If one takes Trump's description of the black community as accurate, data shows that 72.6% would not qualify. But Trump is not the only one guilty of painting the African-American community with a large, erroneous brush. Even those who claim to stand on the vanguard of African-American issues are not immune from engaging in this sophomoric portrayal. But what exactly are black issues? What are the biological and sociological concerns unique to 12.1% of the American population whose descendants came from Africa by way of a forced migration policy? We accept the notion of black issues without giving it much definition in the public discourse. This term has been dominated in recent years by the Black Lives Matter movement. For those who have taken the time to read their website, know they offer a 14-point platform. Though known primarily for opposition to police violence against African-American males, they have outlined a more thorough agenda. But does this alone define so-called black issues? Too often, the civil rights movement is seen exclusively as a black issue. This cursory perspective is understandable, given the majority of its participants were indeed black. But to do so marginalizes this majestic effort. The basis for this movement was the 14th Amendment of the Constitution, which guarantees equal protection under the law. With constitutional undergirding, is this not an American issue? Didn't this movement make America better? Certainly reducing crime in certain black communities is a high priority, along with improving public education and addressing mass incarceration, especially for nonviolent offenders. Some of the high-profile police shootings of black victims also warrant our attention. But this issue, in many respects, has been truncated into a one-size-fits-all definition that serves only to work against the legitimate efforts of the cause. While many quote-unquote black issues are presented as a singularly focused agenda, oftentimes the underlying issues possess universal appeal. Consistent with the contemporary public discourse is to refer to black issues as if everyone embraces a similar working definition. However, the aforementioned issues are not just based on race, they're also of class. It would be more specific to talk about those issues as affecting the black underclass. As much as America has been hamstrung by its original sin of race, it has done so in order to ignore the larger issues of class. Since its inception, America grappled with race as it conveniently muddied the waters on class. Historically, 
American workers have been exploited based on class while using race to seductively create an antagonistic relationship among those who should be natural allies. Lest we forget, class was where Martin Luther King had focused at the time of his assassination. He had come to the realization that the same economic forces that were oppressing poor Negroes were doing likewise to poor whites. King understood then what we have seemingly forgotten today. Discussions of race without including class will keep the nation in a constant state of arrested development and away from pursuing that more perfect union. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. And for those who would like to hear the archive broadcast, you can find those at our website, which is publicmorality.com. That's our show for today. The Public Morality is produced by WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. Thank you.